Our reading today comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you why you're doing this, say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you that we can indeed cry Hosanna to you and that you have come to us in Christ and have uh, died for us and has now been crowned with many crowns, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this time of Easter where we are working towards seeing your son resurrected and glorified, God. And may our hearts be prepared for Good Friday and that Resurrection Sunday, God, even now. Lord, as as our sermon title says, triumphal entry, Lord, may our hearts be prepared for triumphal entry of Christ into our hearts today. Lord, may we uh, receive him. May our hearts be ready to hear what uh, you have for us to hear, God. Yes. Um, and as we work towards this week, God, may we indeed say with those that uh, it is for you, Lord, and that the Lord has need of it, God. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christian. I love this time of year. I'm sure many of you do as well. I love it because it is the culmination of the Christian calendar. It really is the heartbeat of the Christian faith to come to these days, the days of the celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But I love these days also because, well, it's spring, or it's getting really close to spring, because today is indeed our first day of spring. The nice weather outside reminds me of the fact that the long days and cold nights of winter are just about done, and now we get after dinner, a little bit more daylight than we once got in the winter. And it reminds me of spring breaks, of which some of you even right now are on. Many of our members, even frequent early service attendees, missing this morning for they are on spring break travels, headed hither and yon to enjoy this beautiful spring weather. It reminds me of the trips that I would sometimes take just previous to Good Friday and Easter with a group of my friends, late high school, into college, we would find some patch of woods, 
maybe in North Alabama or East Tennessee to go camping, hiking, even enjoyed rock climbing and rappelling, things that my body would no longer allow me to do, you understand. I remember one of those trips just yesterday where we took, well, a novice with us. Uh, a young man who was a friend of all of ours, a little younger than we were, who was anxious to go on his first rock climbing and rappelling trip. Well, that was until he actually tried it. As he was on the top of that cliff, hooked into his carabiner with his rope and thinking about leaning back off the cliff for the very first time, we found it very hard to coax him to do so. He stood there, tried it, backed up, tried it again. No, just can't do it. He was just scared to death. If you've tried this before, you know how scary it is. It works against everything that we know about standing on solid ground in gravity and giving yourself over to what seems like maybe a deadly fall. Yelled at him from the bottom as I had already rappelled down, and I said, "What's the holdup?" He says, "Well, it's almost like once you begin, there's no turning back." <laughs> I think he's right. There are those steps that are fateful steps that once they are taken, there's a sense in which you can never go back. You've heard the phrase, it's past the point of rescue. You see, those are the kinds of steps that Jesus is actually taking in the text before us. Here in Mark chapter 11, he is crossing the Rubicon of sorts. As he's entering Jerusalem, there's no turning back. He will enter this city and he will indeed never leave it. This is his final stop in what has been a grand mission. For in a week's time, he will be sentenced to death and crucified. And Jesus knew this. He knew that as he was taking these steps into the holy city, that he was going to meet with that fate. He actually describes it if you have your Bibles open in the previous chapter in Mark chapter 10. Telling his disciples as they prepared for this Passover celebration here in Jerusalem. He says in verses 33 and 34 of Mark 10. See we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite title for himself. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. You see, Jesus is not a victim of circumstances as he moves into Jerusalem. This is not a chance occurrence. He knows exactly what's going to take place. It's been the plan all along that he is a savior who was born to die. Now, 1 Peter 1 tells us that he was chosen from the, for the foundation of the world. 
for this very purpose. John writes in Revelation 13 that he was slain from before the foundation of the world. This is to say that in the mind and the plan of God, this moment of redemptive history had been scripted. And all of that biblical and theological reality lies behind what we see as very clear intentionality in the heart and the spirit of Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem. We see right there in verse 1 of the text that this is a mention of Bethany. Uh, Bethany, probably a mere two or three miles from Jerusalem. If you were a traveler who was approaching the holy city, maybe coming up from Jericho, let's say, that traveler would have passed through this place known as Bethany and would have rounded the south side of the Mount of Olives, one of Jesus' favorite haunts, and would have come to this outlying district, a district that we really don't know much about with regards to its precise location, but this place that is mentioned here, verse 1, Bethpage. But it's an area in and around Jerusalem that Jesus knew like the back of his hand. You may remember that Lazarus, One of Jesus' best friends, along with Mary and Martha, lived there in Bethany. In fact, this text actually begins and ends with Bethany, doesn't it? He starts from Bethany, he winds up returning to Bethany after looking around the temple once he's into Jerusalem. It was a favorite place to stay for Jesus. It was a comfort inn of sorts for him. For every time he was in Bethany, he stayed at the house of Lazarus. And he's fact, he's just coming from the most memorable of his stays at the house of Lazarus. For in John's gospel, John chapter 11, we're told that Jesus has just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. That a week or so before this moment in the triumphal entry of Jesus... Jesus has performed the greatest miracle that he ever performs. As he calls forth Lazarus, one who has been dead for no fewer than four days. And Lazarus comes forth from that grave. And we're told that the people are abuzz about this miracle. Completely overwhelmed. Jews that were skeptical of Jesus are now all of a sudden following him. He is now at the height of his influence as a ministry leader. It's at a fever pitch. And as you might suspect, because of the excitement about who Jesus is and what it is that he's just done, he's also at the moment of the greatest threat that he's ever experienced as a ministry leader. Rumors about Jesus' resurrecting of Lazarus got back to the Pharisees and we're told in John that indeed they are plotting to kill him. What that means is that we find Jesus at the outset of the triumphal entry, at the greatest moments of his ministry influence and at the greatest threat of his life. Those two realities are colliding in upon us with regards to this text. And yet we have the biblical theological reality that God himself is orchestrating this redemption from before the foundation of the world. 
the layers of richness that are dripping, as it were, off the narrative of this text are remarkable. And it's at this moment that Jesus acts decisively. We see Jesus act with deliberateness and intentionality. He tells two of his disciples, I want you to go into the village, presumably Bethpage, but potentially Bethany, and I want you to retrieve a donkey. Well, we think of it as a donkey. It's actually described here in the text as a colt, which is probably a reference to a, a young donkey, a foal of a donkey, as we read earlier in our liturgy today. But regardless, they're gone there to secure this donkey. And if anyone gives them any trouble, asks them any questions, they're just simply to say, the Lord has need of it and it'll come back your way as soon as he's done with it. And it's a brazen move. It's a brazen move by Jesus. To both act decisively to secure for himself an animal of which he's going to ride into Jerusalem at this moment of greatest ministry influence and greatest ministry threat, Jesus is going to take this particular beast of burden into the holy city and he is going to draw attention to himself in a way that he never does. Never does. In all of the unfolding of the gospel. If we were sequentially working our way through the gospel of Mark, we are simply sitting in this particular text for this morning in Palm Sunday, you would have found Jesus over and over doing miracles and then telling those in whom he did the miracles to, don't say anything about this. Be quiet about all of this. Keep this under wraps. In fact, in John chapter 11, after he's just raised Lazarus from the dead, he seems almost fearful of the excitement of the crowd. We're told that he goes out into the wilderness in a little outlying town called Ephraim. He essentially disappears for about a week before he comes back to Bethany to let everything sort of calm down. It has been Jesus' operating procedure to act in just that manner, and now... As he comes to Passover in Jerusalem, he is now making a brazen and bold move to draw attention to himself because the time has come. The plan from before the foundation of the world is coming to its crescendo. And it's a very unusual act. It's unusual because pilgrims rarely, if ever, rode into Jerusalem on their way to Passover. They always walked. If they carried a, a donkey or a colt, it carried the belongings of the family. Very unusual. As we look into the Gospels too, we never see a place where Jesus ever rides anything. You'll never see him on a horse or on a donkey. It's only in this context that we ever see Jesus a mounted animal, and it's not because he's injured, it's not because he's wearied, it's because he wants to make a deliberate choice, to say something. But what is he saying? Well, to begin to answer that question, maybe it's helpful to ask, why a donkey? Why, why a donkey? I mean, does your mind... Not ask the question, why not a horse? I mean, why not a horse? 
He's a significant ministry leader. And doesn't every leader, especially one who's coming into his kingship, one who is going to uh, lead uh, the people of God into this next great golden age, wouldn't he, well, maybe like Alexander the Great, have a beautiful black stallion like Bucephalus? Or in our own context within the founding of America, why not, like a George Washington, have a glorious white Arabian? Why not a horse? Why is Jesus riding a donkey? It's, it's almost comical, is it not? I mean, I want you to imagine for just a moment Alexander the Great going into war on a donkey. It's, it's tawdry, it's, it's out of place. And yet we find here the Son of God, the Savior, who's bringing in the kingdom, coming to the culmination of his glorious victory on the earth, and he comes in in a victory parade, sitting on a donkey. It seems entirely out of place. And, yes, it's, and yet it's right in the middle of the story. It's right in line with the narrative. For every move that Jesus has made from the beginning to now has been for a purpose. And whenever we see something strange in the text, it's, it's a faithful interpreter of the word that says, there's something important about that. There's a reason why that's there. And the donkey's important. For as we read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Rattling around in the back of Jesus' mind is these words from Zechariah chapter 9 the reality that the king who is to come to bring salvation. The one who comes in righteousness is the one who comes on the foal of a donkey, a young colt. And it's a picture, as Zechariah tells us, of humility. This is a king that is, well, that is just not like Alexander the Great. He, he's not like Julius Caesar. He's not bringing in that sort of kingdom it's a picture of the humility of the nature of the kingdom of which he is adventing. And it shows us that he is not on worldly ambition, which is what he is going to be pressed into with regards to those who follow him. And it is what, in many ways, the Pharisees and even the religious uh, rulers in Rome and the civil government were concerned about, that he has worldly ambition, that he's wanting to upend, as it were, institutional government of that moment, that he is a revolutionary, but nothing could be further from the truth. For the kingdom in which Jesus is building is qualitatively different than every other kingdom in the world. He has come not with worldly ambition, he's come with a divine purpose. We get, we get this divine purpose hinted at in our text in verse 2. I want you to notice that it's important to Jesus that this colt is unridden. Now, for those of you who are in the midst of your reading of Numbers, 
and are surviving in your reading of Numbers. Hold on, Numbers 19 actually gives us wisdom. At this particular moment, it tells us that an animal that is to be devoted to a divine or sacred purpose must never have been put to ordinary use. Must never have been put to ordinary use. You see, when Jesus asks for an unridden donkey, he's not simply being persnickety, like like an actor in Hollywood who's going to his trailer asking for a latte. Jesus is saying, I know Numbers 19. I know the mission that I'm on, the sacred purpose for which I've been called. It's important that this cult fulfills Zechariah chapter 9 and simultaneously meshes beautifully with Numbers 19. For I have come to bring salvation and righteousness and this animal is being used for that divine purpose. Now as these pieces come together, we begin to get a picture of our king. The one who is coming, the one who is from of old, the anointed one that the people of Israel long to see. He's coming not like other rulers because he's coming to establish a kingdom not like other kingdoms. A kingdom that is not of this world that is breaking into this world. And that every single moment that the gospel continues to spread breaks in just a little bit further. And as these pieces come together for the portrait of our king, we begin to see a group of people respond very strongly to what it is that they see Jesus is doing. They believe the time has come. And we see Mark give us an astonishing Description of how the people respond. Presumably, Jesus coming from this region in Bethany, he begins to mount the donkey and they hold him up and they say, No, let's put our cloaks on it. Let's give him a saddle from which he can be cushioned for the journey of two or three miles as he comes into Jerusalem. And as he begins that journey, these pilgrims there for Passover begin to flock on either side as he's walking or he's riding along with them, walking all the way to Jerusalem. As Jesus moves past Bethpage and comes around those southern slopes of the Mount of Olives, he would have begun to glimpse the city. More pilgrims would have been flooding the roads as the roads came together. And as they begin to lay their coats, their cloaks, their outer garments on the ground, paying homage, giving expression to honor for the kind of king that he is, cutting off, we're told, as Mark says, leafy branches, palm branches, showing their parade-like spirit for the coming in of the king that they have longed to come. And we begin to hear those refrains, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It would have been sung, more than likely, antiphonally by those pilgrims. One group saying, Hosanna. And another group saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And back and forth, quoting specifically from Psalm 118. A very sacred section of Scripture for this particular season of Passover. As some of you might be aware, these are 
pilgrim songs, particularly Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, what are known as the Hallel Psalms. They would have been sung during Passover. It was on the minds and the hearts of those pilgrims who were already coming into that place. And as they lifted up the refrains, they would have believed that Jesus indeed was the fulfillment the fulfillment of what they had been singing about year after year as they made that annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Singing those words, Hosanna, a phrase that that very simply means save us. Save us. A phrase that over the history of the use of Psalm 118 actually moves from less of a pleading prayer or cry for salvation and more of a confident embrace that salvation has come. So they're not merely saying, save us, save us. They're saying, salvation has come. Salvation has come. The Lord has heard the prayers of his people. He has brought redemption, a deliverer. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt? I mean, what encouragement. I mean, what what joy would Jesus have experienced having heard these beautiful Psalm 118 refrains of which he is the fulfillment of sung from these hearts? Seeing in the eyes of these pilgrim travelers the hope, hearing in their mouths the expectation of fulfillment. And yet Jesus felt none of those things. In fact, when we read in Luke's account of this particular story, we realize that nothing could be further from the truth. You see, the road into Jerusalem, after you pass that eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, gives way to what's known as the Kidron Valley. It's a It's a very large and deep valley with Jerusalem sitting up on a mound at the end of that valley. We're told in in Luke chapter 19 that when Jesus turned the corner and beheld the city, he did anything but rejoice. We're told in verse 41 that he drew near, saw the city, and he wept. He wept. Right there in the middle of the street of the donkey with hosannas being sung on his left and his right with palm branches waving with people who are laying their cloaks on the ground as if to say, we'll give you everything. We are utterly sold out and submitted to you. It's Jesus whose eyes begin to fill up with tears and who begins to prophesy some of the most darkest words that ever come out of Jesus' lips. Luke 19, verse 41. Would that you, even you, speaking undoubtedly to the pilgrims who would overhear, but more specifically to the city that was ahead, oh, that you would have known on this day the things that would really make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when you will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and you will be torn down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now it would appear that they knew the time of the visitation. Or at least a good portion of them had grasped what was happening. They were walking along the king whom they planned to anoint as their ruler going forward. And Jesus says they don't see it. They're not prepared for the day of his visitation. And it is because Jesus saw that they had ideas about who he was. They had expectations for what he was going to do. And the ideas and the expectations that they held were wrong. And they were going to miss him. As as excited as they were at watching him, they had no idea as to really who he was and what it was that he had come to do. He had not come to establish the glories of David's kingdom in an earthly political sense. Instead, he had come to save them from themselves, sin and death. He had not come to destroy Rome and free Jerusalem from Roman oppression. Indeed, he came for the Romans too. Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation would be a part of this kingdom. He wanted to save Rome as much as he wanted to save Israel. Do You see, Jesus at this moment, as he's weeping over Jerusalem, he sees the unbelief. He sees that they miss it. He sees that they want a certain kind of deliverer and that it's not him. He was the deliverer they needed, but he wasn't in the end the deliverer they wanted. And remarkably, the words that Jesus speaks here in this text in Luke 19 are fulfilled within 40 years. As Titus, that Roman bloodthirsty militant leader comes into Jerusalem and starves the people of Israel, setting around at every gate a barricade, surrounding the city so that no one can come and go, ultimately starving the city to the point, as Josephus says, if he is to be trusted, and sometimes he is and sometimes he's not. But nevertheless, as Josephus says, when they could not even have the strength to bury their own dead, that's when they besieged the city. For they had starved them unto death. And they left a city with not one stone upon another. Now, when I hear that phrase, not one stone upon another, I, I actually go right back to Psalm 118. It's what popped into my mind even in reflection yesterday upon this text. And you might wonder, why Psalm 118? Why would you go back there? Why would you go back to blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna? It seems like this is going in a really sad and somber direction. Well, I want you to think of the section in Psalm 118 just before verses 25 and 26. Really, sections 19 to verse 23. Listen to what is in Psalm 118, verse 19. It says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness. Isn't that where Jesus is going? Into the gates of Jerusalem, into the gates of what is termed the holy, the righteous city, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Indeed, this is the gate of the Lord, the psalmist writes, and the righteous shall enter through it. 
Indeed, Jesus is that righteous one. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Oh, what remarkable encouragement those words are. Jesus has become our salvation. And then the next verse strikes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians and again in Romans that Jesus is a stone. He's a stone of stumbling to the Jews who can never wrap their minds around a king who is crucified and resurrected again. He's a stone to the Gentiles because he's an offense. He's an offense because he calls them sinners and those who are in need of grace. He's a stumbling block. He's a rock of offense. He's the one who ultimately is rejected. He's the one who a week from today, the sound of Hosanna will be hushed to the shouts of crucify him. He's the one who experienced glorious acceptance on false premises who ultimately receives utter rejection when they realize what he's about because they don't really realize what he's about. They don't have the eyes to see. They're hidden from them. As Jesus himself said in Luke 19, you see, he was the Savior they needed, but he wasn't the Savior they wanted. And I believe this is part of what the Lord wants us to take away from this text today. If you're a professing Christian, I believe it's important that we ask ourselves, having seen the confusion of the religious faithful, I mean, these, these are afterwards very good religious Middle Tennessee church-going people. These are pilgrims going to the Passover on that high holy day who have conceptions about the redemption and the deliverer that they are to receive. The question maybe that's posed for us a couple of thousand years removed from this moment is do I follow Jesus for him to build the kingdom that I want? Or do I follow Jesus to be built into the kingdom that he wants? Do I follow Jesus for him to build the kingdom that I want? Do I essentially think he's now going to give me the glorious world that I've always wanted, that my heart has always longed for and was tantalized about? Or am I willing to be built in to the kingdom that he wants? Am I willing, in one sense, to be unbuilt in order to be built into his kingdom. You see, I think that's the image of what Jesus is showing us here with Jerusalem. Do you see, this is what happens for all of those who simply pursue Jesus for themselves, as if he's a lucky charm, as if he's your ticket to the better life that you want now, rather than the life that he scripts that is the way of the cross and the resurrection, that has many twists and turns and mysteries of which... So many of us will never know. Is that when we hold on to Jesus 
in the imaginative, we might even say idolatrous conceptions of who we think that he is, using him for our ends rather than being used for his ends, we ultimately get unbuilt in the end like Jerusalem. Not a stone will be left one to another, but if by his grace he unbuilds us, we wind up saying to him, Lord, let my kingdom fall so that yours can be built. Let my life be given away so that your life can be proclaimed, your gospel can go forth. Let me be slaughtered so that the glory of your grace might go to the far reaches of the ends of the earth. See, that's very different than following Jesus to say, get me the job I want. Take away my suffering. Make my life smoother. Find me the spouse I've been looking for. Secure for me the nest egg that I want so I can retire early and play more golf. That seems like a really different conception than the one that Jesus is actually advancing here. You see, if we come to Jesus to be built into the kingdom that he wants, then our lives are as living stones. That's the way Peter puts it. One life put upon another into a spiritual house, a temple of the presence of Almighty God that's founded upon the cornerstone that is Jesus himself. You see, one day, sooner now than has ever been, Jesus is going to come. He is going to come. He promises it. And he will come when he comes, not on a donkey. He will come on a horse. In Revelation 19, we're told in no uncertain terms that the true and faithful Jesus, the Savior, the one in whom a sword comes out of his mouth, the one who comes to bring justice, the one who comes to bring judgment, the one who comes even to advance his kingdom, will indeed leave no stone one upon another for those who are not followers of him. You see, he's going to lead the armies of heaven. And he is going to usher in the consummation of his kingdom. And we live between the riding of the donkey and the riding of the horse. And following the Savior who rides on the donkey before he rides on the horse makes all the difference in the world. Because at that point, it'll feel like we're past the point of rescue. And so Jesus says on this Palm Sunday to us, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and it is light. Know that I'm carrying the burdens of the world. Notice I am the one who's coming to nail them to the cross. I am the one who's come to pay the burden of sin. And the more that you see that I've already done that and the more the life of my spirit is released into your soul and your life, you will find that every part and fabric of your being in the fun things, in the sorrowful things, in the mundane things, in the pivotal moments of life, Jesus is there. And you begin to walk by his light, mounting as it were a donkey in the humility of Jesus. 
For Hosanna, he has come to save us. Blessed is he who's come in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we ask for these truths, these realities that lie at the foundation of all of life to press deep into us right now, beyond even our own imagining or understanding, bypass even in the depth of your spirit our minds as necessary to penetrate to the very core of who we are and show to us who Jesus is, what he has done, and in light of that, whom he has called us to be. For time is of the essence. The rider of the horse is coming. Let he who has ears, let him hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.